0: Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, the BBC3 switch-off. Is moving the Channel Online the right decision and will anyone still be watching? One in five Muslims sympathise with ISIS, claimed The Sun's headline. But with a litany of complaints, the polling company distancing themselves, and even The Times criticising its stablemate, were they right to publish? And how should newspapers grow their audience online? Their competitors are not only free, but are also more informal and light-hearted in tone. Does traditional media need to become more like them, or would they lose their character? And joining us as usual are two of the media's best and brightest, Joseph Harker is Deputy Comment Editor at The Guardian, and Jack Riley is Commercial Audience Development, Director at the Huffington Post. Media Focus. So, first up, the BBC has announced that BBC Three will go online only in 2016. The Trust has confirmed that the TV channel will be switched off in February and accepts that almost one million younger viewers could be lost. Jack, do you think the Beeb knows what it's doing here?
1: I think it's absolutely the right thing um, for the BBC to do to invest more in digital. I think the question has to come down to whether trying to transition a BBC TV channel, a, a formerly linear TV channel, online is the best way to use those resources. So in the case of the BBC Free um, transition that's going to happen in February, it's actually the case that the content budget, although it's only being cut by 50%, 80% of the remaining budget is going to be spent on long-form programming, which is actually going to still be shown on BBC One and BBC Two. And it's only the remainder of the budget that's going to go on digital, native, shorter-form content. So I suppose my question to the BBC on the BBC Trust announcement that came out this week would be, is this really the best way to turbocharge your digital efforts by putting more money into creating content that ultimately is only going to find its way back onto linear TV anyway?
0: Do you think they mean it as well or do you think this is going to be like the, the, the promised closing of BBC Six music when in fact some cynical people are you know have said that that was actually just a PR stunt and they're hoping for a, a backlash so that they can then change their mind and save BBC
1: Three? Certainly, if you kind of read some of the documents that have been put out around it, there's a it's 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 a bit of a tepid decision that they've made. You know, I don't feel like when you consider them that there's a lot of passion behind the idea in closing the channel, but equally there doesn't seem like there's a lot of enthusiasm for keeping the linear portion of it still going either. I think you know there's been a petition with three hundred thousand signatures. Online on change.org to keep BBC free on on TV, and you have got to think that's an online petition. There are already people who have access to digital, and they're and they're saying they want it to carry on 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 their TV as well. I can't see the BBC backtracking on this at, at this point. I think there are some really admirable things in the plans that they have, but what they have to consider is whether they're really approaching building a digital audience and reaching that audience that are already on digital in the right way. And perhaps the the content types that are part of this proposal are not necessarily the, the right way to reach the you know the proposed um, demographic of sixteen to thirty four, which was exactly the same demographic as the linear TV channel.
0: Joseph, we've got
1: charter renewal coming up. The BBC's remit is to reach out to new audiences
0: and be distinctive. Surely, closing BBC Three and moving on to just the iPlayer this this is insanity, is it not?
2: I think if you don't have faith in the channel, then just shut it down. As Jack was saying if they're going to put some of the content on BBC One and BBC Two anyway, then just shut down BBC Three. Because the idea, BBC is a broadcaster, ultimately it's a broadcaster, it's not a website, and that its content should go out through its broadcasting channels. And uh, I can't see the point of this. I mean, it, it will be interesting to see if there, how much of a backlash there is and how that compares to the BBC Six campaign. And if BBC Three really is popular, then... By all means, reinstate it, but having this halfway house, sort of this pretense that you're still getting a, a TV channel when you're clearly not, and it's a completely different audience, and people access it in a completely different way, um, I just think is ridiculous.
1: I agree with that. I mean, I think you could you could cynically sort of interpret it as a bit of a smash and grab from the old media portion of the BBC that actually the 30 million budget that's remaining is going to go back onto television, um, but it's being it's being presented as as this kind of bold digital plan. And, you know, the BBC has has, has long kind of struggled with reaching a younger audience. Um, I think probably remember things like BBC Switch in the past. Uh, And actually within the BBC stable, there are really successful youth brands. So I think Radio 1 and Newsbeat particularly could probably have seen a lot of benefit from the investment of some of this money into building their own digital services. To put it in context, um, the BBC3 YouTube account, for example, has about 30,000 subscribers Whereas the radio one YouTube channel has two point eight million, so it could be that they've got the right aim, reaching a new audience, doing it through digital, but the wrong way of doing it in trying to transition a linear t v channel to an online offering
2: I think I have a problem with the idea of BBC seeing its future as a kind of as a digital as a as a website only because i mean it, then it's competing with a whole load of other other sites um, newspaper websites to name one as to, to to declare an interest its its job is to me to be a broadcaster and primarily to broadcast material that wouldn't otherwise get an airing or to do have successes and to bring the nation together for key moments and be at the strictly come dancing final or whatever that happens to be if it sees it starts seeing its its own future as being a, some kind of glorified website i think that that's going down a route which which will ultimately mean it's failing its its viewers. Joseph, do you think that there is cause to have some sympathy with the BBC here, though? Because
0: clearly they don't want to be cutting anything. They're under incredible pressure under licence fee renewal to kind of reduce their overheads. You know, this is something that they're having to do reluctantly.
2: That's a very good point. I mean, we we mustn't forget the climate which, in which all this is happening, which is massive cuts, BBC being forced to use its money for world service, for subsidising pensioners' TV licences and the kind of things it's never had to do in the past, and 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 the kind of massive uh, restrictions that are being put on the increasing of the licence fee, and this general fear they have at the moment of a kind of a, a conservative government and a, and a very critical, previously critical, uh, culture secretary now in place. It's running scared, and I think that because of that it's making some kind of poor decisions but uh, absolutely the BBC is a hugely popular institution in Britain um, you know alongside the ranks alongside the NHS and the attacks it's coming under and the kind of cuts it's having to face are are things that it shouldn't have to do and it needn't have to
1: do. I agree completely that you know the BBC is in such a difficult position and it's doing uh, generally a fantastic job. One of the tricky things I think when you kind of look at some of the specifics of the plans that are, are being made are that they don't necessarily set out a, a, a perhaps a bold enough vision for reaching the new generation of of license fee payers who ultimately are going to be the BBC's biggest consumers and and supporters. So although the plans mention things like making sure that the new BBC Three has digital in its DNA, which is you know a horrible phrase, but I think the meaning is probably right. You know, in an example user journey that's published in the proposal it talks about abigail the the supposed bbc3 viewer of the future switching on the tv landing on bbc1 and then watching a bbc3 produced show but on bbc1 so it's still kind of a tv driven um vision that they have but it's it, it's very tricky for the you know for the bbc at this point i think you know they they're definitely showing willing in this in this kind of area and perhaps the structure of the plan just needs a little bit more tweaking to see whether actually they can be be bold enough and ambitious enough to um, to be just as relevant to a younger generation as as they are to older ones. Joseph, let me challenge you on, on your point about the BBC being a kind of website,
0: as it were, because, in a sense, you can't blame them if younger people are the least likely demographic to kind of tune into kind of traditional linear TV channels, and, in fact, they're most likely to embrace online. In fact, that's their primary method of, of you know, watching and, and engaging. So, in a sense, aren't the BBC making the best of a bad job, really, in, in targeting the very audience that's most likely to transition over to digital?
2: Well, in that sense, everyone can go towards digital, can't they? And I think the BBC, you, you could say it has a future, but it's doing a lot more digitally than any other broadcaster. You know, the Sky Sky websites aren't anything like as developed or the ITV news websites aren't anything like as developed as BBCs. And so they're rushing into this. And obviously we've, this, the iPlayer has been a huge success and, and it's been a great way. To, and I think that almost as a, as a result of that success, they're now facing issues of... People accessing their material online and the young people, especially uh, not even paying the TV license. And I think that is a real, a real problem that they're going to be facing. And they have to find a way through that. In, in newspapers, we've had to go through that process where people are accessing our content for free. And it seems like the BBC audiences may be starting to do that. I mean, people who are under 30 aren't used to paying for much anyway. They're not, they're used to getting their news for free. And now they, they will have to start finding a way in which they can. Get the young people, the twenty somethings who are just starting out, just starting out work and, and everything else, and, and, and moving into new homes, they're going to have to start finding ways of getting them to actually pay for the for what they view.
0: Jack, I mean, with your commercial hat on, do you think the BBC are, are moving in the right direction here?
1: I think that they have come on leaps and bounds from from where they were a few years ago, where. There were parts of the BBC's regulations that wouldn't allow them to do to, to actually compete on a level playing field with publishers, for example. So simple things like the implementation of third-party sharing tools took a lot longer for the BBC to implement than others because they didn't really have the regulations that were that were built um, that, that were built around the new reality of how people consume content. That that's changed completely, and I think iPlayer is a is a fantastic example of the BBC leading the way in digital product development. I still think that there's more that they could do, and um, You know, with the funding that they have that must feel in the BBC like it isn't that much when you stack it up against particularly regional newspaper budgets, for example, and general maybe newspaper group budgets. And they they have got a a lot of scale that they can play with and a a lot of interesting um, opportunities to do very, very impactful work that affects millions of people. They're doing a great job. Um, commercially, obviously, it's, it's a challenge for the, you know, for the rest of the industry to figure out how to compete with someone so, um, so great at it. And I'm sure lots of people in newspapers have their moments where they sort of th- think about how big their audience would be and how much attention their, their products would get if the BBC didn't exist. But on balance, I think that we've got to feel pretty thankful that we've got such a responsible and well-resourced broadcaster um, in the country.
2: I mean, it's interesting because, obviously, as a, from a newspaper background myself, there's been a lot of contention about the BBC being, use, able, as you say, able to use its vast resources in order to provide news and content. And in a way, the you know, The Guardian, among others, have faced real competition from the BBC. But if the BBC were to vanish tomorrow as a news website, would other newspaper websites really be that much more popular? Would it make that much difference? I th- Maybe possibly the only major thing which could be significant would be if we it then meant that we could start charging for content, and I think that's been the difficulty that we've all faced. Some newspapers don't mind the content being free, others you know have erected paywalls, but where paywalls have been erected, it's been very difficult for them to get an audience, and they you know you can see their 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 readership figures have tailed off dramatically. So a paywall makes it it, as a business is unviable while the BBC website exists. But I don't know, it'd be interesting now because we've gone down the road so much that if the BBC website did shut down in its entirety, whether it would make that much difference.
0: Joseph, what do you think the BBC could learn from The Guardian? Because, you know, if you liken traditional channels to your kind of paper, your paper-based paper, then The Guardian has created a website that is a behemoth, that is amazing, it's read by millions of people, it's an incredible success, and is free at the point of use. So is, is, are there any kind of learnings over the last few years that the BBC could, could nick if they're going to try and adopt best best practice?
2: I would um, struggle to recommend The Guardian as a, as a model for the BBC to follow just because we're in the very early days of the digital revolution and we still don't know whether the websites will be viable. We know that the, you know, we've, we've invested vast resources in them. We know that it's great for building the brand. We know we get global reach as never before. But whether in a long-term business the, the advertising revenue that will come through or the membership or, or whatever other benefits we'll get from it will really be able to subsidise the, the costs of a website, we still really don't know.
0: And how has it changed your job day-to-day? Are you commissioning more pieces in terms of comment? Are you thinking that's gr- good for online but
2: that won't go in the paper? What does it actually, how does it actually work? Oh it's very different now to say 10 years ago when I started in the comment section. Maybe the biggest difference is is 10 years ago if we were calling somewhere outside the UK say say the US and we would call up and I'd have to spend a minute explaining what the Guardian is and we're a newspaper and we're based in London, England. But now people just know the Guardian around the world and so that that side is much more is is much easier. A lot we were having to turn down a lot of very good content before simply because we didn't have the space. Whereas now we will spend time, we, we will we can make pieces work that might not otherwise be able to fit in. We can run more, better pieces, but it's a lot more work now because we we're, we're turning around so many more pieces. I think the uh, website now, um, Guardian Opinion, you know, publishes about thirty pieces, thirty articles a day, compared to half a dozen that used to go in the. The, the newspaper.
0: And how do you stay on top of that increase in volume? I mean, that sounds well, huge. We,
2: obviously, our staffing has increased uh, in order to cater f- for part of that, but it does mean that we all work a lot harder and that there are a lot more decisions to be made and a lot more pitches to read, whereas immediately the answer could just be, no, sorry, we can't help you, whereas now we've had to consider a lot more articles. So, it makes the job more enjoyable and that there are pieces that, you know, good pieces that we'd before have to turn down, we now can say yes to. So, going... Th- Full bloodedly digital, as we did under our former editor, Alan Rusperger, who um, has meant that, you know, when we've hit very difficult times, as we did after the financial crash seven years ago, it's meant that we've been able to invest. He saw it as a way of investing, giving us a chat, rather than having massive layoffs, which some of the other newspapers did. We use that opportunity to invest in the future, to invest digitally, to keep people in their jobs, and and that's helped create the website as it is today. Next. The Sun
0: has been criticised for splashing on their survey, which claimed that one in five British Muslims were sympathetic to ISIS. The polling company used Servation as distanced itself from the story, and even its own sister paper, The Times, openly described the story as misleading. Joseph, with the number of complaints heading up to 3,000, was The Sun's journalism up to scratch on this one?
2: I think from your introduction, that it. It says it all. Really, it's a bit loaded, it? really, wasn't it? And um, if the surveying, uh, the, the polling company has distanced themselves, if their own stablemate, the Times, have distanced themselves, in a way that says more than any number of complaints. I mean, it's, it's great that readers have got to their pens and their emails and, and have made that many complaints to the press regulation body, but it was a shocking front page. It reminded me of the infamous sun headline in the 1980s black crime shock in which you know try to label all black people as muggers and looters and and um, now they're doing the same but the target is Britain's muslim population and the figures are distorted you know do you have a sympathy with someone who's gone to to fight in Syria can be uh, can be interpreted in so many different ways. Does that mean a symbol? Does that mean that you support them? Does that mean that you sympathise because they're poor young kids who don't know what they're doing, like the three girls who left the school in Tower Hamlets? When you talk about fighters in Syria, does it mean ISIS and people who behead people in the most gruesome fashion, or does it mean people who go and fight those people who behead them? Does it mean you, you support the people who go and fight Assad and his brutal regime? It's so many different ways of interpreting it. And even when they did a survey on the general population, it came out with fairly similar results on people. That just shows how vastly it can be misinterpreted. And for the sun to splash on it in just another kind of grotesque way of demonising Muslims... Why do the you think kind of they worst. did it?
0: Because it just seems stupid.
2: Well, it's it may seem stupid, but it's, it's, it's a great headline. People are talking about it. It's got shock factor. It will have sold newspapers. I mean, at the end of the day, the people who it will demonise aren't people who have a big stake in the British press, they're not people who are running the media, they're not people who are editing and they're not people who are writing. How many? Name me one British Muslim newspaper columnist and I, I challenge you to name one. I, I, can, I There's one who works at The Independent, Yasmin Abai-Brown, I challenge you to name any other. But the, Yasmin's the, been on this podcast actually. She, she's great. <laughs> um, and the you know they, the editors who make these decisions they don't mix with uh, Muslims. They don't they don't they don't interact with them at all. They don't need to worry about what they feel. It's it's indicative of the kind of the systemic lack of diversity and and institutional racism which exists within the national press. Um, the higher up in the although you will get the odd. Journalist reporter who from a minority background, the chances are they'll be at the most junior levels and nowhere near the levels of, you know, that the, the, the senior editors operate. Only this month in November, the Daily Mail had two cartoons, one from both of it in its key cartoon slot by its main cartoonist Mac. One talked about uh, depicted black people as living in jungles, carrying spears and walking around naked. It was a cartoon based on the Tom Jones comments that he may have black ancestors. And the other one was a depiction which was a Nazi-style depiction of migrants crossing into Europe, Muslim migrants, and accompanied by rats, which went straight back to the kind of the rat symbolism that the Nazis gave to Jews in the 1930s. I mean, these are two, the Sun and the Daily Mail are the two most read British newspapers, and this is how they depict Muslims and and minorities today. It feels like it's going back, you know, into the 1980s. I mentioned... 1970s and Afghanistan and all that, but this is 2015. It's just absolutely shocking that these things are still happening today.
0: Jack, it's not only 2015; it's nearly 2016. Have uh, British editors lost the plot?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the polling um, data, you know, you Ugov originally said they didn't want to do this poll. Now, I mean, if we're reaching 3,000 complaints, that's nearly three times as many people as the as the actual survey respondents. And there was a, a, a great anonymous first-person piece this week um, that Vice ran from somebody who conducted the polling on behalf of Servation who said um, themselves that many people they called actually refused to even take part in the survey and that there was no mention of the word jihadi in the script at any point. When when that anonymous um, person gave an example of someone that they'd spoken to who, who had checked the, the some sympathy answer, which was the answer that was um, being flagged up in the headline, the example that they gave was that someone said expressed their sympathy as um, they're brainwashed. I feel sorry for them, which is n- nowhere near the same as um, you know so- agreeing
0: with their political sensibilities or their methods.
1: Absolutely. So I think in this case they've been reaching for a story for for whatever um, reasons um, in the data that just the data just couldn't couldn't really support. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's been s- um, so much of a backlash this week. Which is not even to mention the fact that. There wasn't comparative polling done on any other group of people, and and so saying that this is a, a Muslim attitude, there is really no no evidence for it.
0: Why do you think they've been so reticent to to give a kind of full unequivocal apology? They seem to be being really defensive about this.
1: I really couldn't even speculate on that. I mean, I think it's you know it's definitely got a lot of publicity this week. I'm sure it's sold a lot of newspapers. Um, I fear that it may have played to some abhorrent attitudes you know within the british public on in some in some element rather than challenge them as it's the job of the press to do we're into a new editorship i think it's you know i I think we've got to wait and see whether this is going to be the the kind of the new sun that we're looking at or whether this is a one-off panicked story that the data didn't come back that they were looking for and they went with the story that they wanted to run anyway Joseph, do you
0: think that the backlash against this, though, shows Britain at its best, and do you think this kind of puts a warning shot across the bow of Tony Gallagher under his new editorship, that he's not going to be able to get away with something as ridiculous as this in the future?
2: Well, on your point about why The Sun won't apologise, I mean, I think newspaper editors in general hate apologising. They always like to think that everything they do is right, they have strident opinions on everything, and the fact that they could be proven wrong is something that they just really hate to admit. It's why they held out so long against Leveson, and you know, demanded that you know that the idea about someone being there able to regulate them in any way was something that they really hated and stood out against. So that's kind of absolutely par for the course in terms of a, a typical newspaper editor. The, the thing that whether this shows Britain at its best—I mean, we've had three thousand complaints. The sun's read by literally millions of, of readers. What really, you know, it's great that so many people have taken action and, and reported it. The thing that concerns me is that there is a kind of, you know, a a widespread anti-Muslim sentiment running across uh, the whole of Fleet Street. This plays completely into it. It's not just, as I say, not just the sun. Uh, The Daily Express is probably worse, if anything. Mm. Um, And the Daily Mail I mentioned as well, and they are kind of three very well-read newspapers. It takes it from being a few... Uh, fanatics on the fringes of the Muslim population and takes uh, you know, the extremism right into the heart of uh, British Muslims and, and makes almost every Muslim an, an object of suspicion. And given the rest of the agenda which the, the, the mainstream media are churning out I just worry that it's just another thing and it's, all it does is cause division there'll be people who will be assaulted. We saw uh, an arson attack at Finsbury Park Mosque just in the last few days and uh you know th- these attacks will continue muslims will feel more isolated and alienated in britain divisions will grow um the backlash will grow the hate will grow it's just very depressing that the that, that, the uh the press is still acting like this when i i think back to 1999 and the stephen lawrence inquiry and you know this term institutional racism that came up and and in the build-up to that inquiry report, it just felt for the first time that mainstream press, the national conversation was actually getting what was going on. They ended, started to understand about police and police racism and what it really meant and how black people were always seen as criminals rather than as victims by the police. And we start, got the sense of, you know, the diversity agenda started and this sense that w- we need to move on and be inclusive. And, and and I thought I felt, yeah, at last people are understand our understanding and, and and a considerate um but we seem to have gone back and uh, we seem to be going back more and more almost by the day i mean jack assuming you agree on the the description
0: of the malady as it were what's the prescription here what can be done about this how can we change these attitudes
1: it would be interesting to see what happens with the complaints um to um to ipso and what the reaction is there you know i do take heart from the fact as you pointed out that there was a widespread backlash the number of complaints actually is nowhere near the number of people who um mocked and satirized the front page on social media um and who you know talked about it as um you know in the kind of terms that i think we're, we're sort of talking about it now and so it has been a good thing to see that the the public have. Have rejected a lot of these ideas, and 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 perhaps that in itself will be enough to kind of give some journalists pause the next time that, that you know that, that a subject like this kind of comes up, and to consider actually the, the way that they're covering these these issues. Um, it, it isn't going to be the case that you can expect these kinds of front pages to to resonate um, with an audience as big as, as the Sun's. I'm I'm sure amongst the you know from the 1.9 million circulation now. I'm sure that there's um that 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 lots and lots of the sun's, sun's readers will have felt very uncomfortable with that front page and the nice thing about now compared to 15 20 years ago is that rather than just having a conversation with someone in real life and saying that's a bit kind of off isn't it and I'm not sure you know I'm not sure about that actually people can take to social media and give their opinion share their opinion and um and take the Sun's task for it
2: I think it's great that people have taken action but even if it so does does come out and find Against the Sun will have a tiny little paragraph of a correction on page 23, and the damage has already been done.
0: Finally, are traditional newspapers losing touch? They're coming under pressure from successful online competitors like Vice and indeed the Huffington Post, which are not only free, but write their copy differently in a personal and often informal way. The Holy Grail is to drive huge numbers of clicks from younger readers. Traditionalists like The Telegraph have invested a significant amount in restructuring their newsrooms and covering stories in their online edition which would never see the light of day in the printed version. But it doesn't seem to have worked, at least not yet. Jack, how do you think
1: traditional newspapers can appeal to new audiences without losing their character? I think that traditional newspapers... um I suppose, contrary to the idea that they're losing touch, I think that they are actually gaining touch. Gaining touch? I like that. That's another phrase. From you <laughs> and me. Yeah, I like it. I'm not totally sure, use that not that not now sure on. about
0: that. <laughs> no, I like it. Um, That's
1: a thing from now on. We're going to use that. Okay, gaining touch. <laughs> yeah. They're accruing uh, they're new audiences. Um, at fantastic speed by very quickly embracing the kinds of approaches and um, both to publishing and to content selection and to the distribution of content that um online uh, digital players like um like the and post and vice buzzfeed vox mike business are they Insider. copying your playbook well i i worked at the independent until i worked at the uh, the hovington post and when i when i worked there um I very much kind of had my eye on you know on on what sites like The huffington Post were doing um, and uh, and and I can tell you kind of from inside the newspaper business that you know newspapers are great at being fast followers, I think they probably always have been and and the one of the peculiar things I guess about the media is that all of the Produce every piece of content that you put out um, is there in public for anyone to see. Um, as, at least as long as it's not behind a paywall, and even if it's paywall, it's very easy to access. And so there aren't that many kind of secret tricks um, of the trade to digital publishing because, by its very nature, it's about reaching as many people as possible in as um, frictionless way as possible. So I think traditional newspapers, especially in the UK, are doing a, a pretty pretty great job. Especially when you consider you know the the huge audiences outside the UK of the Mail Online and the Guardian and even if you look at the Telegraph the Mirror the Independent you'd find that you know that they're also competing not just on a national level but on an international level where I think newspapers have had trouble um, is in trying to reflect the attitudes of um, groups that don't necessarily constitute the majority of the you know of of a newspaper's uh, own staff so you, you know as an example the huge kind of attitudinal shift that was affected by the recession, basically into people who either owned property or didn't own property, meant that the attitudes towards property, in particular, I guess, is, is, is a good example, um, were very different when it was expressed by people who owned property and saw the appreciation of their of their property in the aftermath of the financial crash, compared to the angle for people like the 14 million people who rent in this country who um, for whom scraping together a deposit and buying property is very is very difficult and i always found that quite a difficult thing for example reading you know the evening standard homes and property section to read these fantastic stories that you know express the appreciation in the price of property as as a positive thing mm. and and miss the fact that actually a vast wave of their audience it's putting uh, them the, the, the property out of their reach for it, people yeah. that haven't yet got on the property ladder exactly it was, it was actually a negative thing for them so the thing that newspapers have to be careful of is and, and the great thing about online is it, it's it's a it's a really easy thing to look at is making sure that they are actually reflecting the the full picture of all the audiences that they could be um they could be reaching and their attitudes and interests day to day.
0: I should declare that I do write regularly for the Huffington Post, but I have no involvement in editorial matters. Joseph, how is the Guardian gaining touch? I do like that
2: phrase. <laughs> it's been really interesting. Um, the, the, The the whole digital revolution in newspapers. When we launched the Communist Free website, I think it was two thousand and six. So coming up to tenth birthday, start celebrating now. We had an idea about a Guardian reader being someone who contributes to our letters page, and they're all kind of you know they the old corduroy sandals and letter seating was um, you know was was the image that we sort of had in our mind in the best possible way because you know people who really were caring and kind and caring and considerate of others. And then we launched our Comment is Free website and we opened threads and comment threads and I think everyone at the organisation was shocked by the kind of level of, of discussion. We're still not sure whether that's traditional Guardian readers who are commenting or whether it's a new audience who've come to it because it's free and who just like the idea of giving Guardian columnists a kicking quite a lot of fun. I, th- I think in a way the negative has been that the this, this sort of extremist language, the abusive language that, that has kind of attracted to our thread. And not just our thread, but you, you will look at other newspaper threads as well and see that the, the kind of people, the cheap shots that people can make, the how come you got this job? It must be because you're a woman or you're related to blah, blah. They're prone to intemperance, aren't they, these people? That live on the bottom half of the internet. (laughs) (laughs) But having said that, Jack's completely right. It does put us in touch with readers and it does give us that kind of instant feedback on what people are thinking. It changes our views on where the audience is out there. It's made me feel a lot more sympathy for even people like Tony Blair who, you know, realise he has to deal with the haters um, on a regular basis. And has to change. You know, in in those days, it was to, Blair was prime minister that the, the, you know, that they have to modify their views in order to take on board all opinions and so In a way, we have to. It makes us insist on kind of higher standards in in the articles that we publish because we don't want to have uh, the comment threads derailed by easy e- easy open goals that are left by the writer. So, it, it's a very good way of keeping in touch. It, it's also a way in which we um, we can see the kind of pieces which are popular. And which can do very well online. The only thing I would I, I would caution against that though is that sometimes it, it can mean that you go for the easy options. That you know, you, you know, um, anything on Jennifer Lawrence, Miley Cyrus, sex in the headline will do very well online. You know that they they're great. You'll get great traffic from an article like that. Whereas something on, you know, Ebola virus might not, for example, um, or, you know, and and some pieces which can be very important might not necessarily get the kind of the social media shares, shares that some of the other pieces and you can see, you know, Mail Online being a classic example, it is done brilliantly. In terms of it 's become basically an end it 's like it 's almost like the sun online it 's just become this kind of entertainment spot the celebrity and so you know the latest kind of celebrity gossip it 's been great at doing that and I'm not, i wouldn 't criticize it for doing that but it 's completely different to the daily mail and and almost what it does is completely counter to the philosophy of the daily mail and and it 's done it 's done very well I mean, in terms of traffic it doesn 't but its stores aren 't that widely shared i don 't think it makes i don 't think it generally adds to the conversation, particularly, or adds to the depth of hu- human knowledge, and we try and at least inform our readers a lot more, and try and keep to those subjects. Which, um, but I'm not saying we do always have a mix. Even in, in in the newspaper, we try for a mix of subjects which will keep readers interested, as you know, the light as well as the shade, and the the, the serious as, as as well as the the human interest. There's a temptation to go down the kind of BuzzFeed listicle maker, you know, that that kind of way in which everything just becomes a qu- a cheap. You know, headline and you know, get it out there, get it fast. Don't don't make it deep or interesting or whatever, but just get it out there while it's while the subject's hot and and get the clicks in.
0: Jack, one of the things that's impressive about the Huffington Post is that the the editorial mix is quite good because you've recruited quite an impressive array of bloggers, and I include myself in that, of course.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you, very you, expensive.
0: you know, you do read quite a, an
1: interesting array of that aren't necessarily on other platforms. Yeah, so in the UK I think we have around 13,000 bloggers now. Um still the the majority of the actual traffic that we get on the site, the audience and and the time spent on the site is still reading the stuff by the by the staff journalists. Um but we do consider ourselves an an important platform for for people to express viewpoints that are often um missed out from from the mainstream media. So um for example, uh, recently GPs um blogging about the junior doctors strikes and the issues around that and um, it's really an issue where it would be easy for someone else outside that industry to to oversimplify it or to to cover it in a kind of certain way and and we find that nothing actually resonates with an audience as, as well as hearing people who are actually directly affected by these issues talk about them themselves so yeah we have this great sort of platform to to do that um, and and that's a powerful part of what we do but but we do also see that we can differentiate our our journalism, journalism from our staff editors as well by, for example, using data to really understand what people are actually interested in, and 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 really appreciating what it is that that our audience um, want to read about and what matters to them day to day, rather than the kind of viewpoints of some some editors in a sort of Fleet Street ivory tower somewhere who are you know picking up subjects from conversations that they're having with. Politicians or whoever, um, so that's an important differentiator for us. But do you feel a tiny
0: bit threatened that traditional media is raising its game and playing catch up? Because although you've got the first mover advantage and you know you're very metrics and data focused, in a sense they're they're playing catch up, aren't they?
1: Is Ab- that a threat to you? Absolutely. I mean, it's you know it, I think we see ourselves as part of an ecosystem of um, of of other media where we are quite generous in terms of our outlook so you know occasionally you would have this thing in newspapers where um, a newspaper will not cover a story that another newspaper has covered because it's their story not ours even if it's something that's important for your readers equally you would sometimes get newspapers who will cover a story that someone else has done but not mention that you know that it's been done by someone else counting on the fact that in print few people are likely to read more than one newspaper We, we try and be kind of over the top of that sort of model, and 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 incorporate all the debate that's going on online around the content that's you know that's being published. So, for example, we covered a lot the the hashtag one in five Muslims after the Sun front page um, last week, and and the kind of the satirical um, responses that people put on that hashtag. One of the things that does best for us is actually our coverage of Question Time, for example, and what we figure is there's a big audience who appreciate the question time is really important, know that the guests on it are really great, but it's just too late for them to stay up and watch it on a, on a school night or a work night. And so our coverage of it the next day with the embedded video and, and the coverage of, of how it kind of played out is often one of the most popular things that that, that we'll do. Um, so I I don't see it as being a, a kind of a zero-sum game where we're all th- sort of threatening each other and stealing market share off each other. I actually think HuffPost particularly is in a position... Um, where it should be able to benefit from um, from a lot of plurality in terms of what we cover. Joseph,
0: does The Guardian have an evil plan to crush The Huffington Post? Are you going to take eyeballs from them or are you looking to kind of grow the audience overall? How how does The Guardian grow as a
2: website? I mean, we're so much at the start of the whole digital world. I mean, the, the, the traffic figures over the last few years have gone... You know, it, The Huffington Post launched, it 2011? I think it Huffington Post launched in, in the UK four years ago. And at the time, it felt like, oh, my gosh, we've got this big challenger, this big, heavily funded challenger. And, um, you know, over the last four years, the Huffington Post has grown in the UK. The Guardian has grown in the UK. It's not a zero-sum game. It, it, it's w- There's so much potential audience out there. You know, we've in those years, we've built up our audience in the US. We've gone to Australia. Who knows, you know, if we might go to other, other countries as well. And I think there's a lot of audience to be garnered in the UK as well. From you know minorities, especially who've not been, you know, much much catered for. Even even the, the regions, Northern Ireland, Scotland, you know, Wales, who don't get necessarily well covered by the the national press at, at the moment. The, there are the lots of there's so much scope to broaden it. And and the more, you know, you'd have thought by now, you know, as I say, nearly ten years after the launch of Comment is Free. That we would have reached saturation point, but the evidence is, you know, and and with the Paris attacks a couple of weeks ago, again we had record traffic figures, and that built on the previous records, and you know, it, it's it seems to just go up and up and up, and uh, uh, you know, and it becomes more global. Our audience, you know, because the, the Guardian and the Huffington Post are both global brands, it also means that we get new readers coming in from all over the world now so emerging as, markets emerging and, uh, developing yeah, developing, uh, uh, developing, developing world we get people you know where maybe their local media is good but doesn't cover global issues um in the way that a well-funded well-resourced kind of european or or, or american uh publication can so it, there's there's an awful lot still to go before we have to start fighting each other and you know seeing each other as individually as the
1: enemy i think there's a there's a long way before we reach that point Jack, we're running out of metaphorical tips, so the last point is with your good self. Well, yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I I would say one note of caution um, to contrast the the kind of the next period of digital for journalism with the with the last one is that many publications saw a huge amount of growth over the past few years just through uh, device proliferation. So. It's not the case now that there is that much more addressable audience in people who are getting their mobile phones for the first time in the UK. It's about 80% of the population of smartphone penetration now. People think that the theoretical maximum is about 90%. So we've had a great run over the last few years of being able to accrue new eyeballs from new devices and new contexts in which people can consume content. The next period, I think, is going to be a little bit more tricky because although there are some new platforms like wearable tech, coming along that there isn't that much more space in our lives that digital could be in but isn't in right now so it may be that you know if we if we sit down again in a couple of years we, we'd be talking more about uh, a period of yeah consolidation and competition rather than uh, the sort of the the growth that we've all been able to experience over the recent history
0: i'm incredibly proud of this podcast because we have three northerners here don't we <laughs> including myself i'm normally the token Northern. Yep. joseph where are you from i'm from holland east yorkshire at least you've got your health. That's the old joke, isn't it? <laughs> we used to say that. How long have you been down
2: here? Oh, about thirty years. You can see a oh, lot. Ab- yeah. <laughs> apart from saying bath and grass, I think that my accent seems to have gone and disappeared, and my kids even take the mickey out of me for saying that too. Mine is a little bit. I go up to York once a, uh, once a month for the weekend to see my family, and
0: uh, I always come back down sounding a little bit more northern. <laughs> I think. So, um, tell us, Joseph, how do people follow your work, and how do they follow you on Twitter?
2: My Twitter hashtag is at Joseph Harker. I say I'm the deputy editor of of, uh, The Guardian Opinion, as it's now called. You can catch me there. I mainly edit, though, so I'm I'm mainly uh, involved in editing rather than writing. Jack,
1: where are you from? Uh, I'm from from Manchester, uh-huh. uh, from South Manchester. <laughs> it's getting worse, doesn't it, Joseph? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how long have you been down here? I've been down here about ten years now, but I think I've, I've my accent has has gone pretty quickly as well. Yeah, well, none of them. I think I'm the most northern sounding
0: out of all three of us. You're the I? most I authentic northerner yeah. of <laughs> trips back to York. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so, how do people follow what you're doing on Twitter? How do people read the Huffington Post? Um, so, Huffington Post is um and on Twitter, I'm at underscore Jack Riley
0: those who want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard. Don't forget, you can also go to mediafocus.org.uk and leave your email address in the box and receive a shiny update once a week, letting you know when the new podcast is out. But that's it. The introductory script was written by Connor Mitchell. The associate producer was Jordan Greenway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media production. (laughs) Big Things!